life radio stories at the intersection of music and life Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Stephen Carter Hicks is a classically trained singer who found his calling in the world of cabaret. Starting his career in show business through his talents as a hairdresser, He worked on Broadway productions such as Tommy, but soon found himself on the stage in performances like Cats. He found his passion, though, in Cabaret, and has gone on to record albums and produce and star in several shows. Eric Kaur interviews Stephen about his life and career in show business. Sit back and enjoy another episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Step Into My Parlor, featuring Stephen Carter Hicks. Part One. Welcome to Music Life Radio. My name is Eric Kaur from the band Gunpowder, and today we have Stephen Carter Hicks, legitimate, illegitimate performance cabaret artist, as he <laughs> likes to be called sometimes. Before we begin, I, I have to say something. Because I remember when I first met you, I was mm-hmm. it was at a party at Nick and Jeff's house, mm-hmm. uh, mutual friends, and and I was told that there would be a one person show. And I have to say, those are those are the most probably three of the most dreaded words I could ever hear. <laughs> because usually, when I go, what I hear that I go, oh my god, no! Because so few people can pull that off. I mean, it is, that is just, yeah, I mean, true. really, it takes so mm-hmm. much talent and so much charisma and so much charm. And, and yeah, I'm building to it. I'm building mm-hmm. to it. And, <laughs> and you started, and suddenly it was over. And I wanted more. That's all I knew. It was just, it was so wonderful and so elegant. Oh, thank and you. thank you. And it was so smooth and just, just a beautiful, beautiful evening and performance. And, well, that and you know what that what you just said that you wanted more is the yeah you know, that's the the uh, you know we're the rule that we live by. You always leave them wanting more. You know you don't give them so much that they're done with you and they never come back. You want them to you know they want you to you want people to come back and enjoy what you do and 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 hear more and what's next and what's next. So that's that's really nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, and even I I think I mentioned to you my my husband David. Literally, it was like he had stars in his eyes. He's like, I have to have my picture with him. I have to have did my picture. Did we pic- do that? Did we yes, we did. Okay. And he was, he was starstruck. Oh, that's and, so sweet. And to put it in context for people listening, this was a very intimate holiday gathering at someone's home. Yeah, so this was Christmas. This, this was, was Christmas. The, one of the Christmas ones. Yeah, okay. and it was, right. you know, it was just, and it was, and it was just a really warm and just really great experience, mm-hmm. so... Thank you for that. Well, sure. I love, we, we've done many more there, and we're going to do even more. Uh, I know we're having, we have one on January 13th that uh, actually not going to be at Nick and Jeff's, but at uh, his mentors, this woman that sponsored 
him to come in. We're going to be in uh, at her house. The uh, Taiwanese ballet company is coming in, and so they want me to do a concert for oh, them. Fantastic. Yeah. So I said, absolutely. So that's, I think, January 13th. And it's the same sort of thing where it's going to be in somebody's home. And that's, that's something that I love doing more than anything because I, I love to see the people's reactions. I, I work better if I can see you and see how you're responding to me, I work better. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I like that. Whether it's good or bad, you know, I, I'm not one of those people that's like, you're not laughing, I'm going to hit you over the head harder and make you laugh. But I, I want to I see why and see maybe I can figure out what it is to hook you in or, you know, or when it gets intimate and it gets personal and I uh, tell maybe something, a story about myself or part, relate myself to that song uh, in a way that moves people, I want to. I want to see them being moved because that that's what it's all about for me. That's how I'm paid, you know. Yeah. Besides cash, I <laughs> besides that part, I, I that is a, a huge reward for me. And if I touch one person, then I'm uh, I feel like I've really done my job, you know. And I know there are people there that also just are like <laughs> next, but. Uh, you know, that's not everybody's going to love what I do, so that's well, okay. When I was there, it seemed like they did. So. Yeah, well, they did. Most of yeah. the time, they do. <laughs> <laughs> I try to make sure everyone's, there's something for everybody, you know, from kids on up. Yeah, no, it never really was just a great pleasure. Oh, good. Is, so I'd like to just step back a bit okay. and kind of rewind our... Is it my breath? No, <laughs> no, 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 because no, we both have the same garlic dip, yeah, so it's, it's, it's okay, uh, right. which so is we fine. We can be very intimate exactly, now. now. Yeah, exactly, now. Well, so we've all had it. <laughs> sometimes I wish I had little garlic tabs to give people, and just if I've had garlic going, really, it'll be easier for both of us. But yeah. Is maybe I'll right, come good. up with a garlic breath mint or something Let's that see. could. Not, hey, we're onto something here. We're onto something. Mm-hmm. It's it, unfortunately it's not a tech thing, so we won't yeah. actually make money off it. But it's useful. So <laughs> it's useful, exactly. Yeah, there will be no venture capitalist shit chasing us down yeah. for this one. But no, kind of like my shows, no one's chasing me down for it. But <laughs> but people will appreciate people what we've appreciate done here. It. So yes. So I'd like to know where did your love of cabaret come from? Where did your love of singing come from? Is and I'm assuming. For many people, it starts in the childhood somewhere. Yeah. There was something yeah. that I'm, I'm very typical of that. I had, to a point, I had a musical family. My, my dad actually was a shape note singer, and that's mountain folk in the east, can you ex- Kentucky. I, can you explain what a shape note singer is? It, it, they didn't understand, or they didn't have a way of writing music, so they wrote them in shapes. They didn't realize that, you know, they had just circles and for, you know, notes and square notes and half notes. So they used triangles and squares and half, half a circle. And, and, uh, that's how I write music actually. (laughs) And, you know, and so that's how they learned to sing with these shape notes. Okay. And it's, uh, it's done, like I said, in the mountains where they, they were very poor and they didn't have access to modern musical things. And so, uh, that's how it got passed around. And my dad, and I'm from that area in Kentucky in the Eastern Mountains. So the you know, kind of Appalachian. And... The Appalachian, yeah, exactly. And there's okay. a group called the Chuck Wagon Gang. If you ever get a chance, Google them. Ready look them up, now. Chuck Wagon Gang, and you'll hear it. And it's it's not really much different than anything like church hymn singing. But when you listen to them, uh, they all, they're all singing the shape notes, and they sing, they have perfect pitch when they do that. And that's why I found very interesting that my father, if he looked at his shape notebook, he would have perfect pitch. He sang the bass line. He was on it because that shape, that note was always, and that shape was right in that part of his voice or this part of his voice. 
And so he would do that. But if you put a regular church hymnal in front of him, he was kind of lost. And he yeah. followed me. You know, his ear was good, but he would follow me along. So that's where it started. And my mother, my mother should have been the singer. My mother should have had the career. Uh, I always say that. She had, if you can imagine, Julie Andrews as an alto. That was my mother. Wow. She had one of the most spectacular voices that you've ever heard. And uh she sang as I was growing up, you know, she did all the church jobs and my dad was in the military. So she would go to the base chapels and they hired my mom to sing in these quartets and, and solos at everybody's wedding or funeral or what have you. And she has this pure, beautiful sound that just would, it was so exciting just to listen to her sing. And my sister played piano and I played piano and we, you know, we all grew up in sitting around the piano singing. Now I have another brother and sister who completely tone deaf. Completely, just absolutely not musical at all. But they're pretty, so <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty. And at least they got something. So yeah, you know, well, you know, people used to say when I would bring you know guys I was dating home, and they would say, "Oh my God, do you think your brother would go out with me?" And I'm like, <laughs> "What are you kidding? You're with me, and what? No, no, he's the pretty one." You're I, like, "Only if I can sing at the wedding, yeah, darling. If I can sing at the wedding, and then we're fine." So, but yeah, but so it, so I grew up in that. And by the time I was in high school, my uh, I had really like dove in headfirst to music. I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be some. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a concert pianist or a singer or a or what or a conductor. I, I just didn't know. I just knew that it had to be something in music. And my voice wasn't as uh, developed as I uh, or I wasn't developing that. I never thought of it in those terms. Mm-hmm. You know, I was. I was in the choirs, but I played in band too, and I so I, I, you know, I just had a lot going on, and I just had to figure out where I was going. Until one of my musical directors in high school, it was my freshman, between eighth or ninth, yeah, eighth and ninth grade. Uh, my voice really, ch- I changed in fifth grade. Let's put it that way. They kicked me out of high school, the fifth grade choir, because I went from boy soprano to boy bass very oh, wow. quickly. Okay. So for to me, I was like, oh, I can't be a singer now. So I was just playing piano and all that, but. Uh, I used to have this fake opera voice that I would use and just to play around with. And my choral director heard me one day and he said, who is that? Who's up there singing? And I went, it's just me. That's my fake opera voice. And he went, no, it's not. Oh my God. No, it's not. Sing that again. And I was like, no, that's that's, that's (laughs) fake. That's not real singing. He said, do it again. And I did. And I said, okay, okay. But I had to like hide. I had to go in the practice room and shut the door. I was like, no. And I did it. And that's, that's how it happened. It all, that's all she wrote. <laughs> Next thing you know, I was singing everywhere. So what instrument were you playing in, in the band then? All of them. I wanted to play everything. I, played, okay. I, I couldn't do any brass. I didn't have the armature for that. But I, had, I played all the winds. I played clarinet, sax, flute. I was working on bassoon and oboe when singing really took over. But I had them all. I had all those instruments. And wow. they were in my bedroom. And I'd play them all. And I'd want to figure it out. I was like, how does this work? How to make me, I want to make this play. And I want to know. So did you get started on piano then? When was I was that, young. And okay. yeah, what's interesting about that uh, is, well, it is to me, <laughs> I started playing by ear. And my sister would play. And I, and then she was taking lessons. And so I would say, oh, how do you, show me that again. And she'd play it. And then I'd sit down and play it back. And I could sit down and I could create and play by ear. I wasn't reading music. So my mother said, you know, we should get you to learn to read music. And I went into the piano teacher and I would say to her, oh, I had trouble with this. How does this go? I can't figure this out. And she would play it. And then as soon as she played it, then I could play it back. 
and wow. I and I play it back for her, and I say, "Oh, okay, I get it now," and I play it. And then finally, you know, after about the third or fourth lesson, she caught on, and she was like, "Oh no, you have to play this." So you look at those notes and you put them down here because I wasn't reading music; I was just listening to her play it. And that was so much easier. I could do it that way. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, I'll do that." But so then that's when the this battle with me started was uh, because I don't have peripheral vision. And from here and here down. So she would say, look at the music and you can see the keys and you can see it. And I'd be like, because I'd be like this. And then I would look and go like this and then read and try to memorize, you know, three measures down and then go and play. And she would say, no, 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 no. Look at that. You can see it. And I'd be like, I can't see it. I can't see it. I don't see my fingers. And I thought there was something wrong with me. So I didn't say anything. And so then the battle of my sight reading abilities began. And uh, that's always been a bugaboo for me, sight reading and uh, playing. Have you gotten better at it though, or I mean, no, hell like, no. You can, I'm assuming, yeah, can you yeah. read music? Yeah. You've been, oh yeah, yeah you've yeah. been classically trained. Yes, and, yes, okay. yes, yes. I mean, I really wanted to be a concert pianist, so I, I, I okay. play. But uh, and and I, I played in church because it was much. It was a lot more fun, and I could learn. I learned how to transpose because you know I come from a Pentecostal kind of holy ghost roller kind of group of people. And if you didn't trans, you know, go up every every verse, then there was something wrong with you. So you just had to go, and you had to figure out what your transitional chords were, and you just would go. So as long as I didn't have to play the melody, I'm okay. If I have to play the melody, I'm I'm not your guy. <laughs> so during the services, you'd go up and just jump in and play. And- well, I, I was I was the pianist for church. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So not always, you know, I would swing, fill in, or I'd play Sunday night or a special service. I started doing that, and then once I started singing, though, all that kind of got, they were like, no, no, you really need to sing. I like, yeah, but I want to play. Well, no, you need to sing. So, but, so I really concentrated on singing by that point. Never star was in the sky Winter winds went wailing by No Violet was in bloom, not a rainbow rimmed the gloom. But the lights on Carter. Earth is happy and thank God It's morning, it's morning, it's morning Morning on the holy hills Meadows that enfold the rills Morning in the heavens of blue Morning in the eyes of you God made my skies It's morning It's morning It's morning Now, did you grow up with listening to like bluegrass and country? Because I think, isn't that kind of the region that yeah. the, the Carter family yes, and yes. comes from? And the cash and, and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 
it, what's very funny is when I was, I went down to visit my grandmother, and we literally lived in a holler, and I mean, all my all my brothers and sisters and cousins, they all talk like this, and they talk this way, and my voice teacher said, you will not talk like that, <laughs> you will not, that's just not going to happen, uh, and it's hard, because that's like music to my ear, when I go home, if I'm on the phone and talk to any of them, even my mother, I don't think she has a southern accent, but a lot of my northern friends all say, wow, she's from the south, isn't she? Like, well, not, com- not compared to what I know is the South. Right. But, but um, yeah, I, so I'd gone down to tell my grandmother I was going to college and I was going to go major in music and I was going to be an opera singer. And she literally thought, she said, well, why are you going into Cincinnati? The opera's down in Tennessee. And I said, not opera, 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 uh, opera. And, and she never got it, never. No, she goes, well, that don't make no darn sense to me because you're going up into Cincinnati when you should be down there in Tennessee, and I don't get it. Well, when I hear on the radio, when you're going to be singing at the opera, I'm like, oh, next week, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's easier to just to play along with her. But, yeah, that's the truth. It's absolutely true. Now, were you influenced by that at all? Because I know your your direction's a whole other. Yeah, n- uh, n- only in... Uh, what not to do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. It's, I mean, it's very close to my heart, but I didn't, uh, my mother and father wanted us to have nothing to do with that life. There, I, was, my dad was a Marine and he said, we're getting out of here. We're getting out of the sticks. We're getting out of the holler. We're getting out of here and you're going to be educated and you're not going to be like this. Oh, okay. And, and I don't mean to, and I, no, but so country music was kind of be seen offensive. as being... Yeah, that, okay. was, no, that, no, was, mm-hmm, that was a no-no. And I loved it. I loved it because it was fun and it was easy. And I, I, easy because I got it. It was in my blood, that easy. Not that it was easy to do. It well, but also just, if, if you if you can pick stuff up by ear, mm-hmm. that's how a lot of you know, oh, all yeah. those folks... Oh, yeah, that's how it's all passed along. Yeah. I mean, you, you could put music in front of them. They wouldn't know how to read it at all. And they outplay a lot of classical players oh it was some fantastic you know the fiddle players they just they just pick that thing up and go so that and that always fascinated me i was like wow how do you do that how does that happen so there's really if you're a genius you're a genius doesn't matter where you are just how you're influenced you know and somebody put that in your hand and and so for some reason my parents and my dad especially because my dad was a, a sportsman he was a marine and he was a pe major and his degree was in pe and that's what we were going to do. You know, you had to have a sport and you had to be sports and we're not in music and we don't do that. So what was your sport? <laughs> well, I can't say it here, but <laughs> uh, my sport was swimming. Now here, okay. I will tell you this, this is the God's honest truth and you can look it up and check it out. I was uh, an alternate in, uh, for one of the years of the Olympic swimming team. And wow. my father still did not accept that as a sport. He said, well, yeah, but it's not a sport. I'm like, I'm, I'm headed to the Olympics, and you don't think I'm doing a sport because it's not football or baseball. Okay. And I was terrible. I, was, I couldn't because I'm also, I, I don't, because I don't have peripheral vision, I don't have depth perception. So if you throw a ball to me, I, it has to almost hit me before I can actually see mm-hmm. it coming. So, you know, I've, I've learned through my life uh, how to deal with that and how to compensate because this is what I know. It's like people who are colorblind. They don't right. really know you're colorblind. I mean, you know that it's, this is what you see is red is red. And so this is, everything looks like a picture to me. There's no depth into it. And, uh, and there's glasses that they can make for you to fix that, but they're really, really expensive. But we didn't know. 
we just thought, you know, my dad just thought, well, you're just an idiot. You can't do anything. You can't throw a ball. You can't catch a ball. Can't do anything. I said, but I can swim. Yeah, but that's not a sport. So, you know, <laughs> so, but I, I did. I swam competitively for 18 years. So I'm curious, Marine Father, mm-hmm. sports, mm-hmm. show tunes. Show tunes. I just, I'm trying to make this link and it's just. Here it comes. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a bridge you've got to create for me because I'm not I, sure how to get there. I will tell you what happened. When uh, I, at night, it was all in secret. I would, uh, I would have my headphones on, and those were those days with those big can things on your ears, and, <laughs> and I'd plug it in, and I would be in my bedroom. And I was always, uh, my brother and I had to share a room, so he, wanted, he didn't want to hear that, and I, I couldn't believe it. Now, my mother, it all started with Liberace and the Miss America pageants okay and we would watch and she would say come down and watch this you've got to hear the singer or you've got to see this girl sing or see Liberace's playing and now we would be sitting there watching it and my mother would secretly get out of comb and tease my hair up <laughs> i'm not kidding you as i live and breathe i'm not kidding and my father would just flip out and she said but he's got such nice hair would she so ever slip nice you a sequin or two while you're watching it no 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 i do that on my own but that's when i was like oh, i have to have outfits like that i want to look like that i want to have shiny everything and wow and, he was fantastic oh please oh my gosh I mean, he was oh just my gosh. Uh, all the way to the bank you know yeah. all the way to the bank but you know i i uh, i remember when i had my fake opera voice discovery my choir director, and I was going into the ninth grade, and he went to my mother and said, this is something special. This is not just, he can't, this is, we have to do something about this. And so she said, when we get back to the East Coast, her, the conductor of the officer's wife's club, choir woman, was a, uh, was my voice, was a voice teacher, and she said, I'm going to take you to Janet. And it was the smartest thing she could have done. I was 14, and this woman was one of the greatest voice teachers, I think, that has ever lived and really took care of me as a young singer and as a singer. And she became my outlet. So my, my family and my father kind of got pushed all over here, and I just, I just went down this road by myself. So now, but you were in Kentucky, and then so your dad was a career officer. Yeah, yeah. We, we, Kentucky was where I was born, and okay. that was home. But we, we traveled. We traveled. California in high school, Washington, D.C. Oh, in high school, okay, okay, okay. North Carolina. So you were exposed to a lot of other stuff yeah, then, too. Yeah, okay. yeah, and this was, the, this was out here in 29 Palms, California, is where I started, music really started happening. My mother went to the uh, high school choir director and band director, he was, he was both, and said, you know, he's not learning anything over there at that intermediate school. You know, can you, is there anything you can do? And so in eighth grade, they brought me in, and I started oh. playing with the band and in eighth grade, and singing, uh, doing some of the uh, fun, they called it spring fling sing thing, kind of, you know, an evening. And I just started to learn to play guitar. So, you know, we had a couple of guys playing guitar, and we were doing all these Simon and Garfunkel things and, uh, and doing performing. And I, and I wrote my first song then, and by one of my only songs. Because <laughs> I realized I was wondering I'm not a writer. Were... Okay, <laughs> That's okay. not my... That is not my what I do. That is not me. And so, but I tried it because everybody was doing it, and they said, "Oh, write a song." Said, okay, sure. You know, it's all in D. That's all I, I could play it for you today. I could still do. It. I can still remember it. But <laughs> uh, so we, that's how that kind of all got started, and it just it started happening. My father was also going. 
Oh, God. Oh, God. No, please don't make this happen. I'm sure. You know? Well, so. Was that a constant kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh-huh. source yeah. of tension for you yes. and the family? Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew... <laughs> I knew from age seven that I wanted to be a musician and I wanted to be something in music. I knew okay. from at that time in my life. And I watched every singer you can imagine, Peggy Lee, Margaret Whiting, uh, Rosemary Clooney, uh, and, uh, and Julie Wilson. And notice these are all women. Mm. The only male influence, and do not laugh at me, I will throw something at you if you laugh at me. My only male influence I had was Jim Neighbors. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> it's the truth. You know, it's although a, he did have a nice voice, he so. had a beautiful voice, and it, it I, just I, wasn't the it. It was it was the it was awkward to see him singing though, mm-hmm. because well, that yes. voice wasn't supposed to come from him. No, it just didn't. No. That's how it felt when yeah. I saw him sing. It just didn't. Well, and that was the whole. You know, that was their whole what the, their gimmick. You know, that was his thing, and uh, so that was. But that's what my voice sounded like. Yeah, and that's what I was doing. I would sing along with all those records, all of his records. I would sing right along with them. And but my influence were were those those salty, sultry dames, broads. You know, I loved mm-hmm. that. And what was great is that as I once I got to New York and started uh, performing and doing what I was doing, I met them. Oh and wow! I got to hang out, and Rosemary Clooney became one of my mentors, and. Uh, Margaret Whiting, who married a gay porn star, you know she married Jack Wrangler, and in my, and so I go. We they had this, and I'm going way off base here, but I had, I had this. Uh, they had a cabaret symposium that they did every year, and you go up to this wonderful lake house up in Connecticut, and and it was a barn that was turned into a theater, and you got to just spend you know two weeks with these amazing people, with Margaret Whiting, with Jack Wrangler, with with uh, Craig Carnelia and uh, Julie Wilson and, and Andre Margovici and, and, and they would mentor you and you would spend working on material. And it was like a safe place that you could mess up. You could have breakdowns. I mean, it, it was a little, uh, people got a little nervous because people, they needed to have a therapist because they were treating it like therapy and people were having, you know, literally having breakdowns and, <laughs> you know, all sorts of things were going on. But, but it was it was a great time of of letting go and learning and and taking from these amazing people. So at the audition, I walk in. Now here are these amazing women and men who have you know been in business for years. And Tex Arnold at the piano, and I'm like, oh my god, wow! But what do I do? I walk in and go, oh my god, Jack Wrangler! Oh my god, you have no idea how you influenced me as a young gay man. Wow, <laughs> and I, I mean that's what I do. But I'm like, oh great! Now here are these these icons sitting around me, and I go to the gay porn star. And you know what? Nice. They probably loved you all that much for it. It, I mean, it paid off. It really did. Yeah. It, it, it and I didn't. You know, I I'm in, try to be honest at all times, and I have no filters. And my editors have disappeared, so things come out of my mouth that probably shouldn't. And that was one of those times where it just you know it came out. And I was like, oh. Okay, well, that's either going to, you know, they're going to get rid of me or it's going to endear me to them. And it did. And I was very lucky. And Margaret became a very big fan of mine. And uh, I was, I, she had such, I have a note from her that I framed because she was so encouraging with what I was doing. And, uh, and Andrew Margovich is the one who said, you need to 
do this music. Nobody's doing it. And this is so perfect for your voice because this kind of, that music from that time period is, was was for singers. I mean, real singer, singer people, you know, it wasn't written because that's, they didn't have what we have today. You know, they just had this kind of, this kind of sound. So there was, you know, only a couple of options. And so it's, you know, all that stuff from the thirties by Sibian Romberg and, and all that, all that, Great stuff that a lot of people hear and just go, Bleh. I'm like, oh, give it to me. I want more of that. I want more Can of that. Can you give uh, like a few song examples that I mean, people are listening that they might want to check out? Uh, sure. If you go to Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald, any of those wonderful operettas, some of that music I use, Rosalie. Uh, I have a piece and on my CD, one of my CDs that, uh, like I've done a lot, uh, but it uh, was given to me by Michael Feinstein that... Um, Harry Warren wrote this song called Summer Night, and it was never recorded. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Michael Feinstein's one of my best friends. And I, I, when I went to him about this, about doing the song, I said, or not the song, but this show that I, once I started doing this music, I said, you know, I'd come to cabaret camp, and this is kind of what I want to do. I think I could do this music really well. And I have, there's a composer called Oli Speaks who has written some great what we call encore songs and, you know, recital work. When you do a classical recital, you come out and you do one of these songs at the end. And it's a feel-good song, because after you've sung all that hard-ass music in different languages and just killed yourself, mm-hmm. it's it's like at, like you've had a really deep tissue moving the muscles off of your bone <coughs> massage, and then they do cranial sacral work at the end. You know, they do something really nice and make you feel good. Well, that's what these songs were. And uh, I just liked singing them. They all felt good. And they, they sit in a place in your voice that makes you just, like, orgasming all the time. It really is. Because it just it just fills up your head and your body. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. So, hmm. Well, it's funny about that, too, because I, I think that there's songs that artists are drawn to because it pushes us to our limits. Mm-hmm. Yes. And those are often not the songs that people want to hear. Mm-hmm. What they want to hear is... The simple, clean melody, the mm-hmm. most basic, the like the Beatlesque, yeah, type yeah. thing. GCD, it's, it's, GCD, GCD. But it's kind of funny how there's that. There's always that that thing where it's there's what indulges us mm-hmm. and then what indulges the audience too. Well, and you and I think when I went to Michael, when I went to him and talked to him about this, and and he's so funny. He's like a a Rolodex, and you can he'll say, "Oh, I don't know that," and then he'll go, "Wait a minute," and you'll just see his brain go. Uh, Warren, Harry Warren, Summer Night, never done, do the song. He, You get this music that if you do it honestly, and even though it may be a little indulgent, if, but if you do it really well and honestly, then people will get it and they'll go with you. Why am I so jealous of the moon? Jealous of a summer night in June? Why can they remain beside my darling While I must leave so soon Summer night Starry skies You can see my sweetheart with a thousand eyes Why have I only two To behold a thousand charms I idolize? 
there and you're masturbating on stage people are gonna go eh. it makes me think of uh i hate to even bring this into the conversation but i just said masturbating come on all right I'm gonna, okay i'm gonna go there then american <laughs> idol oh yeah well, i mean talking yes. about masturbating i mean that yes. is just yeah that's public masturbation by people who don't even know how to properly masturbate and they don't even know how and, yeah and this so, is you know what what's his name harry Connick. well that's who i was mm-hmm. gonna bring up is Sad. is i saw him on there and mm-hmm. I, we're both going the same place with this. Is I remember when he was a voice coach on there, mm-hmm. and how right. angry he was getting. Yep, because he was going. This these songs aren't about you working the scales. Mm-hmm. These songs aren't about your technique. This is about you feeling your way mm-hmm. through the song. You have to know what heartbreak is to sing a song about yeah. heartbreak. Yeah, you have to have experienced yes. pain and suffering to mm-hmm. sing from that place. Yeah, now and. Yeah, this is gonna. This could bite me in the ass, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Is and I can do that. Though, when I hear him sing, I don't. I don't hear that in his voice. I mean, I, I as a coach, I thought he was amazing. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I, I like the songs he sings. I don't hear it though. I don't. I don't feel it. Yeah. But I know he understands it. I yeah. don't. I'm not. Yeah. No, you get that. You. You. I. I. I agree with you. I'm not a huge fan of his as a singer, a performer. Uh, I've never seen him live. I've only seen him, you know, in context of TV or on a on, yeah, me too. radio. And and I go, oh, it's just an odd choice. But Charming as hell, though. Charming. And he's a good actor. I love him. Everything yeah. he's acted in, I've really liked him. I think he's kind of, a, you know, a hot guy to look at. But he's but he's a great mentor with them. And, yeah. and that one, there was one girl in particular. And I only know this because of this, because of this happened. And then I actually had a really a young, one of the girls who was one of the top finalists this year on American Idol, was a friend of mine. Okay. And she's a friend of my niece's, and I've known her since she was eight years old, and I didn't even know she did half the stuff she did. I was like, are you kidding me? Well, with this, with the, you were in New Orleans with a squeeze box and doing this? Wow. But he said to this girl, 
don't do it. Don't come out on this stage and and do Whitney Houston. Don't do yeah. you know. Find you've got to have a core. You've got to have a melody here. Don't do it. You know, just do it this one time. Don't do that because kids start out and they just start riffing right away, and yeah. it's just that you know <clears throat> masturbation. It is. It is just and not a lot of times not very good, and you just go, jeez. Oh, can you please just find something in here? Why are you doing this? There's no reason for that. And so understand why, if the song calls for it, then go, by all means, wail, you know? And but and he said, so don't do it, don't do it. Just sing to see how beautiful and pure this was. And she walked out on the stage and just went, but, you know, went right into it. And he was like, shoot me. Why, why did I, I waste all my time? And it was frustrating because I was listening to him give the advice. I was going... This guy's good. Yeah, yeah. It's I was everything he was saying. I was going yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And then I would watch these performers go out on stage, and I go no, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, they were just killing these songs. Yeah. Because they think well, and this this last season, and and I I'm telling you, I have only watched American Idol like the first year, part of the second year. Harry's mentoring time, a little bit of that, and then this season. And what I what I found very interesting is that. Here are these iconic people at this point, and I hate to use that term with them, but they are, and they are—they know what they're doing. Yeah, they've obviously been in the business a long time. They—they they have advice that I would listen to. This was my—you know—I was 22 years old, and these people were coming up to me and saying, "Okay, this is good. Now try this and try this." Uh, I would listen to them, and these kids didn't listen to them. Yeah. And one kid just said, they said, okay, first of all, that key's the wrong key, so bring it down a step. Can you do it in, in another key? And he brought it down to F instead of G or whatever it was he was doing. And it sounded better, but he went, no, I don't want to do that. I want it in my key. And he sounded like crap. And he strained, and he didn't make the end. And I just went, what part of that did you not get? And that was what I was frustrated, because I'd, I'd watch it on and off. And it was basically because I was enjoying watching the coaches, because they brought on some really mm-hmm. talented people you just hear what aretha franklin told them no well, your business oh no my God. She, they had i didn't even know they had her on that she was the been. first it was the first time they okay. were in detroit before they, oh. they really got kicked off she was in detroit and she said to them you this is a business and you better know your business that's sacrilege not to listen to aretha i know i, mean, I think you go straight to hell for that i don't think i, I, I think sure <laughs> i was raised catholic and i think you actually draw i think the they actually have a trap door in purgatory where exactly. it just opens up and you just boom you're at the like right. the lowest le- you level you didn't listen to aretha. yeah it's over you for you you just you're you know no you can't wow. and there's no there's no prayer that's going to get you back yeah. well, i hate to say you know what i blame for that though mm-hmm. is kind of like the 80s 90s r&b mm-hmm. because that was i remember because I love old school R and B, I yeah. love it. And oh I, yeah, and yeah. I like where R and B is heading now. I like mm-hmm. people like CeeLo yeah. and uh, Pharrell. And I don't uh, get CeeLo. As I get Pharrell, I don't get CeeLo. I really don't. And I, I, I've tried. I've really tried, and I don't get him. Well, he's he's if he has he's one of those guys. If he has the right song mm-hmm. and the right person kind of guiding him, mm-hmm. he's great. But he needs. And this is just my interpretation of his work. Mm-hmm. But he really needs the person driving him. So that yeah. song, yeah. you know, that F.U. song or whatever right. that was, mm-hmm. is that was written by Bruno Mars. Yes. And that was just the perfect song for his voice. Right. Who I love. I love Bruno Which, Mars. Bruno, and again, that, but it's that, that, that old school sensibility mm-hmm. of R&B mm-hmm. where they're going for the emotion. They're not. Right. But a lot of these these young singers today have been brought up with this, the people singing the scales mm-hmm. and it's just, it's, it's the riff it's painful. It's the, you know, we, I was working on Broadway, uh, 
this is 93, we were doing Tommy. And the girl playing the Acid Queen was unbelievable. She's a classically trained singer named Cheryl Freeman. Absolute lunatic. And I love her. And I you say this with a lots of to, love. To, to play the Acid Queen. We, yeah, and we call her the soloist because that's all she did. She does that number and then the finale, and that was it. She would try to teach me to riff. Because she said, I said, I can't do that. I, that's just not in me. Yeah. I, I, I know there's a black woman inside of me somewhere, but I can't bring her out. And I, I want to be able to do this. I, I felt so, I'm, you know, I can only do this kind of singing because now I'm so trained into classical. You know, you can't, you know, I've got to do everything the right way and vocalize the right way. And, and I said, you're classically trained. How do you do that? And she would say, okay, it's just, you know, you got to bend the notes. So you go above it. Ah, ah. Nah. And she would, be, she would be doing it. And I'd be like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> She'd be like, oh, honey, no. You know, maybe you're just not meant to do this. <laughs> so, okay. It sounds like Thank when I God. went salsa dancing and they were like, move your hips. I'm like, they're moving. I am and, moving them. Yeah, and they're like, no, you're standing still. I'm like, uh, no, they're, they're shaking all over the no, place. You just can't see it, but I, I feel it, you know. I, exactly. That's me. Inside, I am riffing my head off, but outside, it's just one note. And <laughs> I don't even try. I don't, and, and I don't try. I really don't. I mean, I, I sing with a group now. Uh, that uh, actually has loosened me up a lot. And I, I go, because they're like, do it. No, do it. Do it. You know, we're in performance, and they're going, go, go, let go, let go, go sing it. Do it, do it. <laughs> like, okay, oh, I'll do it a little bit. And, and then they laugh at me. But but I've loosened up a lot from that. <laughs> so I want to take a little tangent. I want to go okay. back. To, I want to go back to, I'm going to assume childhood. Okay. <laughs> and so we've got. Wait, let me lay down. Okay. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing kind of a therapy thing for people who are right. listening. It's is right. uh, Stevens on the couch, I'm in the chair, and I get to go. Mm-hmm, 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 tell me about mm-hmm. your mother. Yeah, and uh, so I'm just curious. So, cabaret, mm-hmm. Liberace, opera, mm-hmm. Marine Dad, and at some point, there, there's got to be the coming out. Or did yeah. it just kind of, did it slip out? Did it come out? I mean, how did it? I was, I came out out, you know, I, I don't understand that term coming out because for me, uh, now this is again, I, let me, I don't want to be politically incorrect or offend anybody. Uh, but for me, I, I'm no different. I mean, I was like, I'm gay. And, and all of a sudden it's a whole, you know, people were like, oh my God, you're gay. And I'm like, what? But I'm, <laughs> <laughs> didn't you know i knew how could you not know i'm not any different it's not like all of a sudden this big realization you know i had to i you know mom dad there's something about me that you'll you could never know please my mother was teasing my hair you know after swim practice she would you know they didn't have blow dryers i'd come home i'd be soaking wet and i'd sit down and she'd get that old dryer that you know you sit under the dryer oh you know, the portable, yeah and she could take the cap off and it had a hose and we should have known then we should have invented the blow dryer right then and there that's when we say that's where we're stupid we don't write things down i have a, my drummer friend genie the, the, the drummer of my group and all we've written a million shows that these great ideas she said you know the difference between that and the people who are successful in us is because they write everything down we just forget <laughs> it so my mother's there drying my hair and you know next thing you know i have bouffant and i have curls and i have you know sculpted hair and i'm you know five and or in second and third grade how old you are then and, and i'm like come on I, you put me in a dress in second grade to go out in Halloween. So what part? You thought I was a little girl doll. Yeah, baby, baby mama mm-hmm. just knew and, you know. Well, of course she knew. Yeah. She knew. And she was, the, and, and what's interesting is 
that she she knew they all knew they couldn't have not known but she was the enabler and my father really didn't want this uh, when i officially came out big time um they my dad said to me my mother was going through menopause i was a mess i i i didn't know what i was doing i'd had a lot of stuff happen to me uh because of because i w- i came out in a time when you still couldn't be gay it still was like that was taboo, and yeah. and my voice teacher was was horrified, and although she was a big dyke, uh, just was like, you can't, you can't come out, you can't do this. You've got to, you know, you've got to have women around you, and you've got to know how to drink wine, and you're going to be this big opera star, and you're the student is going to who launched is going to launch me into the you know the voice teacher hall of fame. You are going to carry me, and I'm going to ride on your star, and and that pressure uh, caused me to collapse basically, and. So I was home dealing with all of this, and my dad said to me one day, uh, and my mother was obviously, you know, having issues coming, going through menopause, uh, and so we were all trying to be quiet, and it was pressure on him, and he took me into the family room, and he was standing at the, like, window here at the glass doors looking out onto the horizon, and he said, and he would never look at me, he just said, you know, I think homosexuals are the most worthless human beings on the face of this earth. And if I had my druthers, I would take all of you and line you right up in the edge of the universe and take a howitzer and just blow you off the earth. Well, see, he said all of you. All of you, yeah. So he included you in Oh, yeah, yeah. He was talking to me, yeah, specifically. And I said, okay, see ya. And I left, and I never came back. I literally just walked out the door, and he was screaming, "Don't you take that car? That car doesn't belong to you. That car stays here. You don't take that car." And I went, "Yeah, I am taking that car. <laughs> Bye." And I, I was working at a hotel, and I went to the hotel manager and said, "Look, I don't have any place to go. Can I live here until I?" You know, he said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "You know what? Take this room. It wasn't that busy. It was a comfort in." And I said, "Okay." And I, I lived there for a while, while trying to figure out where what I was going to do and where I was going to go, and. And uh, that's when my cabaret journey began. Uh, my life journey but, uh, took me to where I needed to go. By the old mine pagoda, looking eastward to the sea, there's a Burma girl a setting, and I know she thinks of me. For the wind is in the palm trees. And the temple bells, they say, Come you back, you British soldier. Come you back to Mandalay. Come you back to Mandalay. Come you back to Mandalay. Where the old flotilla lay. Can't you hear the paddles chunking from Rangoon to Mandalay? On the road to Mandalay, where the flying fishies play, and the dawn comes up like thunder out of a china across the bay. If I hadn't gone this direction, I don't think I would be here where I am, which is not really anywhere. But, <laughs> but I wouldn't have had, 
I wouldn't have gotten to Broadway the way I did. I wouldn't have gotten to meet Michael Feinstein. I wouldn't have had all the the uh, amazing experience. You know, Michael took me to dinner at the White House. Wow. And I mean an intimate dinner at the White House. And that, you know, here I am sitting there with all these amazing people and politicians and the Clintons were in office and this is pre-Monica, so it was still kind of cool. <laughs> so everybody was happy. And it was unbelievable. They were the most amazing people I've ever met. And what was funny is we go, you, you go into the East Wing and, and it's all, everybody's there because they're supposed to be there. It was a $10,000 a plate dinner. Oh. And the Eleanor Roosevelt Society was honoring Hillary. And Michael had given them a, a tape of Eleanor Roosevelt singing High Hopes to Frank Sinatra. And, oh my God. Which was just brilliant, wow. I have to say. And you go and so you're, you're just mingling and everybody's talking and, Michael's Michael knows everybody. He's performed there many times already. And okay. so he knows everybody. All the staff know him. So we actually got a couple of little extra things that we weren't supposed to have and some things we weren't supposed to go into. And because the 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 maitre d' I don't know what his, his name is, the guy who runs who's the head of the house, loved Michael. So we were in rooms we shouldn't have been in. <laughs> but all of a sudden you get ushered, all of a sudden the crowd just starts moving. And then next thing you know, you're in line going into the green room to meet the president and the Mrs. President. And the Marine, you go in and he's standing on a, a box that's about this high. So he's above you. And you, you and they, they fixed it so that you kind of walk down. So when you get to the president, he's actually a little bit higher than everybody. So when you shake your hand, shake hands with him and well, take your picture. he's a tall guy already. Well, he's already he? tall. Yeah. He's already, you know, but he's up on this little pedestal. It's like, oh, okay, this is funny. But uh, he leaned down and Michael was in front of me. And he said, would you like me to introduce you as a couple? This is a Marine. Wow. Now, and I will tail hook this back to my father. Uh, it, it just blew me away. And I said, well, we're not actually a couple, but thank you. I said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind. That'd be kind of fun. But you know, not, we're not together, even though people thought we were, but we, we weren't. That's still amazing. But yeah. And, and, and then you meet them. And I tell you what, that man took my hand and put both of his hands over him and just, Said, I'm so glad you could be here to honor Hillary because it's a really important night for her, and I just want to thank you for coming. And I went, take all my money, just take it here. Wow. I don't have anything, but just take whatever I have. And then you meet her, and you know, in person, she's really lovely and beautiful. And and she she said to me, uh, you know, welcome. You know, I'm so glad. Thank you for coming tonight. And I mean, they they look at you right in the eye, and they don't. It's not like oh yeah hi hi nothing. It was so genuine. I felt like I was the only one in the room. And she's, I said, Mrs. Clinton, I have to tell you, I, I grew up here in this area, in the D.C. area, and uh, my dad is a Marine, and, and well, I've never been in the White House. I never took the tour. She goes, Stephen. Now, she called me by my name, which just impressed me. She said, Stephen, I, you have to know that this is your house. This isn't my house. You are free to go and look and ask. If you have any questions, please come and ask me, and if I can answer them, I will. Or we'll find out the answer or just, you know, somehow. And I said, really? I can go anywhere? She said, yeah. And I said, can I look in your closets? <laughs> she said, maybe not everywhere. <laughs> I really want to look in your closet and see what kind of shoes you wear. So, but I, I, that Marine doing that just made me go, wow, we, we have really come a long way. That's really touching. For a Marine to do that. And by this point now, my father had, uh, and my father just passed away. Which I know. I think we yeah. you knew that. And uh, he had dementia, really bad. Uh, I don't know if anybody has dementia, not really bad, but his was called Louis body. So you lose all your body stuff. Your body stops talking to it. So you lose 
everything yeah wow. physically and then your brain goes but oh so the body goes before the, yeah almost like lou Gehrig. yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like that exactly okay. and uh <laughs> the stories but my father had uh bypass surgery and they had retired from marine corps then retired from his second profession and they were living on a golf course in florida that's all they wanted to do was play golf and that was it that was my mother's dream and she was having it and that was that and so there they are on the golf course and my dad has, uh, my mom calls me, and I'm on Broadway, and it's half hour. Now, the rule was you weren't to call me at half hour because that's, you know, you can call me up to half hour, and after half hour, you can't call because I had a phone in my room. And we were doing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, and it was 730. The phone rang, and I went, mm. said hello, and it was my mother. And she said, hi, I just want to let you know that um, your dad's having uh, quadruple bypass surgery in the morning. I just want to let you know. Oh, God. And I went, oh, my, thank you. What a perfect timing. I said, well, okay, Mom, I said, I'll tell you what, I will, at intermission, I'm going to get a, uh, you know, get online. Well, they had a guy there who could help me. I don't think we had online at that point. But he had a big computer. And I said, I'll, I'll get a ticket. No, no, don't come. Don't come. I went, he's having quadruple bypass surgery. I'm, I'll be there in the morning. All right? I'll figure this out. Well, okay, if you want to come. But, you know, that's my parents. They, I had an aunt die or an uncle die, and they didn't tell me for six weeks. And I said, why did you not tell me? And she said, oh, we didn't want to upset you. I went, okay, so now I'm upset and I'm mad and pissed off because you didn't tell me. I was like, I don't understand your thinking. It makes me crazy. So so I got I got there, and I got there before he went in. I got to talk to him, although he was drugged up and he was happy as a lark. But we, so he goes in and and... For, there was some problem. He had AFib, and they couldn't get him his heart back to normal sinus rhythm. And so there's problems, and there's problems. And so I'm spending the night with him. My mom's going back down. This is they were in Tampa, but they lived in Sun City in a retirement home. And so I'm I'm there with my dad, and I'm just singing, you know, singing hymns. That's all he ever wanted me to do was sing hymns. Mm. So I'd sit there and hold his hand and just sing hymns. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am long. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home when my way grows drear. Precious Lord, linger near when my light is almost gone. Hear my cry, hear my call, hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. Anytime he got up and moved, I got up and would say, you know, you okay, Pop? Is everything okay? Can I get you something? Whatever. Trying to be the good son, even though he had, I mean, we had never reconciled what okay, had happened? I was wondering about that. My uh, my brother called me. I was doing something at Ford's Theater, and I was in D.C. And he said, "You know, mom and dad are, don't understand why you you know what's going on." I went, "They understand. They know. And if they want to see me, this is where I am. But I'm not making any more efforts because 
I'm not doing that. I'm not going through that. I just won't have that in my life. And so we we had to go go through that. And you know, then they showed up. Some I, I honestly I don't remember what how, how this got to where it was, but I, all of a sudden we all just came together. It was like, "Hi, how are you? Everything's good." La la la. You know, pretend like because we don't air our dirty laundry in public or anywhere. So that's how you know that's how my family works. Except me, I was the one who was always going, oh, no, 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 we're airing our dirty laundry. <laughs> and and you know what? I'll do it from stage. I was going to say, and you'll do it with a song. I'll do it with a song and a story, and I will nail you from the stage. Trust me, I can do it. I've done it. <laughs> so I get this note from my father a couple months after all this has happened saying, I'm so sorry. I was such a hateful, evil father to you. Wow. I'm so sorry. I can't believe you came and spent that time with me and held my hand. And every time I moved or flinched, you you were there. And he said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. So, you know, I was like, <laughs> you know, that's, well, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and then, then I realized that it wasn't my father I had issues with. It was my mother. My father was just being my father, you know, he just was being this country boy raised from in Kentucky, then went right into the Marine Corps where you didn't question authority. You, you know, he, my father is a product of that. And I realized it was my mother who was the one who was the enabler and the one who would say to me, oh my God, you're so fat here, eat this. Mm. She still does this to this day. She'll do that. How did you gain so much weight? Have these potatoes. And put that butter on there. <laughs> I have real butter here. And, you know, like, are you listening to yourself? And and she's 84. And uh, uh, we had a, uh, you know, the big cats can't play together. And I, I don't let her get away with a lot of stuff. And she'll, they're very conservative, right wing. Although my mother is the first one to say we should legalize drugs. We should legalize prostitution. So we can, you know, tax it. We got to tax those people are making money. We need to tax that stuff, you know, and these women need to have health care. And I'm like, I don't get you. I mean, she's the first one in, in Kentucky. The, there were two little uh, African-American kids uh, who wanted to come to Sunday school, summer, whatever, that was vacation Bible school. And because they were black, they weren't allowed to come. And my mother said, absolutely not. And she went up and got them, went up to Corbin, picked them up. And brought him in, and the pastor of the church said to her, you're not going to do this every day, are you? And she said, I sure am. So, you know, I, here I have this very liberal, political, politically motivated mom, and yet you turn around and she'll just say, you know, most, the most horrible things. And I, while my father was, uh, after he died in February, but we couldn't bury him until May 11th, because that's how Arlington Cemetery works. And so I stayed home with my mom to help her through this time, and I, I literally, at, we would watch Wheel of Fortune and then, well, we would do American Idol too on the Monday nights and then The Voice on Tuesday nights. And uh, on uh, after Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, I would have to go to bed at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock, whatever time it was, because she would turn on all the most right-winged, icky news, Fox News people, mm. and then start screaming with them at the TV and be like, oh my God, this is hateful. So... Yeah, so, uh, and, but yet she's the one who'll say, I'll pay for your plane ticket to come home if you come home. Like, yeah, you will. <laughs> but it's given me, you know, it's, it, that's what's given me a lot of my 
ability and my freedom to perform and, and to go there when I have to. I use all of that when I sing, all, every bit of that. There's so many pieces of your experience that have been up with, mm-hmm. uh, kind of at odds with one mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. that I can see where, as a performer, that you've been able to internalize that mm-hmm. but also own it and yeah, yeah. Well, turn to. it into you a tool. Because to. some you people, to. you know, I, I think... That's the beauty of being an artist, being a performer, is that is you, you have a way to take that, that, that stuff and actually mm-hmm. turn it into something beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You, you, for me, this was me in my bedroom shutting the door, and this was the escape for me when, when I was in high school and even out of high school when my life really just hit the skids and hit everything. And I, could, I had this space in this private world of cabaret, but for me in my own bedroom. And I, that's where I would perform, just for me, you know. But it took me away. It took me out of all of that hate and ugly and crap. And it took, you know, I'm one of those people who would watch Disney and just go, oh, God, take me to that island or take me to, you know, those mm-hmm. those songs would just tear me up. And uh, uh, then I learned that uh, one of the things that you have to do as an artist is that you can't fall apart on stage. You know, you have to come to the edge. Right. You come right to that edge, and you get people to think you're about to cry, and instead, they cry. Yeah. And you lead them to the edge, and then you let them do their thing. But you can't actually go that far. You know, you can get close to it, and you can have a tear, but you cannot break down. And you have to you have to take those stories, and that's why you have to really rehearse and really research and get it, get it in you so that you can you can do that. And I don't want to say you manipulate people or you're manipulating it, but you have to be you have to have that strength, but that that core strength that let you one to let you open the door and to be honest, but also to contain it so that you just don't become this blubbering mess. But that also takes a deep understanding of self mm-hmm. and a, absolutely a real introspect to one's own experience mm-hmm. because you have to really know who you are mm-hmm. and understand where those feelings sure. came from mm-hmm. and own it and own it. If you listen to any of Pete Townsend's stuff, uh, and I was uh, reading his book, uh, which I, I just find really fascinating his life. That's his life. He used all that experience of his life, uh, growing up when he did. And yeah, they were so young yeah. when all this stuff happened to them. What, what was going on with them? And, uh, I, I'm, re- I'm really touched by his, what he does and how he how he put that incorporated that into his songs into his music and uh you know yeah it got a little crazy and it got out of control but but you know that's what he did that was you know and I, so, so it doesn't matter whatever your art form is whether yeah. you're you know r&b or rock or what were you calling it this earlier the prog progressive oh progressive prog rock yeah prog rock, rock you yeah. know or, or if it's buddha bar any of those kind of anything I love live performance that goes there, that will take you to on the journey. Because if you're not going on a journey somehow, then what are you doing this for? This is my, my philosophy. Yeah. And I, I love it. I love uh, you know, Tony Levin. Uh, he plays with Peter Gabriel's drummer. I can't, I can't remember his name. Um, they have this group that when, after they go on tour with their big bands, they tour these, these little clubs. And do the music they want to do, and it's so cool because it's it's so real and it's so honest and so just packed with all sorts of cool stuff and uh, and I love that you know I can love any kind of music I'm not just locked into that I can only sing what kind of music 
I love to listen to all sorts of kinds, you know, and that's, but I, I draw from that too, you know, there's yeah. no reason. I was doing a, uh, we were putting an act together, not an act, but a couple of, uh, my friend, my drummer friend and uh, musicians that I worked with in all, usually all the time and, and the East Coast, they're on the East Coast and I, and I miss them terribly. But Cheney would say to me, okay, we're going to do this Doris Day song. And I went, Doris Day? Are you nuts? I can't do that. And she said, but now we're going to do this Beatles song. And I went, I, I can't do a Beatles song. I can't do that. She goes, yes, you can. But you it's, can. You know, years ago I heard, heard a Johnny Cash interview or it was maybe something I read, of, but he basically said, you know, when I when I hear other people's music, because he, he did a lot of covers, mm -hmm. but he said, what I'm listening for is, how do I make this a Johnny Cash song? Right, right. And I think that's really, again, it's that ownership. It's, it's, it's Exactly. You know, because exactly. I'm so glad you brought up Pete Townsend. We're actually working on Rough Boys right now. Oh, are you really? Oh, cool. But it's such a fantastic song. He's and, a good friend of mine. You know Pete? Yeah, very well. Oh. I, I'll show you how well I know him. Well, let, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. Uh -huh. is, and I, I'm going to say this because I have to say it is, Pete is, I think, one of the most underrated people mm -hmm. in music ever. Say that too. No, I, he's very I, humble. He's 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 amazing. I think he's brilliant. I mean, even when we work with our band, there's things that I'll, I'll even I you know even like a little thing I'll go. Well, this is kind of a Pete Townsend thing. <laughs> we'll, uh -huh. But I mean, there's a lot of things in rock and roll that are from Pete Townsend. Yeah. Oh I yeah. I mean, he has done so much for that genre, and I don't. And I and it, and it kills me because I think a lot of people don't even realize just how critical he he is yeah. and how crucial he was for rock music being what it is today. Yeah, I mean, he's he, he's just incredible. I mean, he's I I agree with that a hundred percent. And I think he I don't think he realizes it because he he really speaks of his peers, you know, like Mick Jagger and uh, the, that group of people uh, is influencing him, but. I think he was influencing them as well. Because oh, he's brilliant. He's, he's a genius. Brilliant. I mean, I think he's, I'm going to go there. I think he's kind of the Beethoven of rock music. There's Pete Townsend humping me. Oh, my gosh. This is beautiful. I have to. I, I was, I was, we were, he was having a party because he was there for Tommy. And he said, I want to have this party. I want it to be just us. You know, I don't want a lot of paparazzi. I don't want people, you know, I don't want all these groupies, just the, the show people. And it's so funny that he that's, said that. I have that. And, that's so cool. And so I said, I, I, and, he, and he said, I want you to come because I don't drink and I don't smoke. I don't do drugs, um, illegal ones. And I, so I, I, I didn't go to a lot of that because those guys partied hard and, and I, I just couldn't do it. So I didn't go a lot. And he said, please come. I really want you to come. I think he had a boner for me. I really do. Because he would stay with me all the time. When he would come into New York, he stayed in my dressing room. He, that's where he was all the time. So he, um, he said, would you please come to the party? And I was like, no, all right, I'll go. And it was at this old theater that they turned into a club uh, called Club USA, and they'd rented out the balcony, which is this, like a private room. And there was, there was a, like 30 people, I think, maybe 35 people. And they brought guitars, and they always jam. And uh, so the music so is fun. going... And and I'm just standing there, you know, I'm just watching and, and talking. Pete comes and grabs me and literally drags me out into the middle of the room and starts dancing with me. And he's like, come on, come on, dance with me, dance, come on, you can die. And, I, and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> okay. But it was just us. I wasn't thinking about it. So we're going, yeah. now he's really, like, on me, like, going at it. And I'm like, are you, is this just for show? Or are, is that a, are you hard? What is that? 
So I'm like, he's like grabbing onto me and holding onto me. And I look over and I see this photographer, you know, that big telephoto lens going. And I said, Pete, this photographer is taking a picture of you humping me. He goes, really? I hope we're in the front page of the Enquirer. Yeah. And <laughs> he just humped me more. And I was like. That's awesome. Oh, that's why I'm saying they're just going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just didn't know what to do. Because I was like, here I am, Pete Townsend, just, you know, macking on me. So, but he was. Absolutely genuine. I have to say, he was so... There was a point where Tommy had run for about four and a half years, I think, or three and a half, four. I think we're in our fourth and a half year. And so, typically, when a show starts to kind of start going, okay, now what do we do? Yeah. We got a publicity again, and somebody has to sink some money into it to really get it going, to get to tell the world they need to see this. And so, there was talk about, well, what do we do? Do we close? Do we bring somebody famous in? What do we do? So the talk was, let's bring Katie Lang in to play Tommy. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I thought I thought that would have been an interesting sort of thing. But he said, absolutely not. He said, if we have to do that, I'll close the show. He said, I don't want Katie Lang playing my part, playing this. But this was not written so that some star could come in or some, you know, rocker or somebody could come in and just, you know, do what they wanted with it. He goes, that's not what this piece is. He said, I'll yank it. Mm-mm. I have complete control of this. I'll do what I want. No. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, I, I thought, well, we all need jobs, Pete. <laughs> we got to work. <laughs> don't do that. You yank it, then we don't have jobs, and you still have money coming in, and we don't. <laughs> but that's how this works, so let's look at it that way. And, and he understood that, but he just said, I, I, I won't have it. Wow. And if, if you really want it, and if I can just tell you this story quickly. Oh, yeah. Back next Christmas, I worked with Roger in A Christmas Carol. They brought Roger <laughs> oh, Daltrey fun. in to play Scrooge. Now... He is exactly what you would think he is. He is all of that and then some. That rock and roll guy. That's what he is. But he's older, you know, and still sweet and kind. And He just seems like he'd be a lot of fun. He's, he is, and he's also a pain in the ass. Because he knows how to perform once every four days, you know. The rock and roll guy, you know, uh, they have okay. a concert and then they're off for four days. And they have a show and they're off for four days. So they can blow out their voice, rest, and come back. So he goes out and he gives 180%, and we're doing five shows a day. A day. Oh, my God. And I'm like, you you can't do that. No, this and is, I hate to say, I'm, I'm laughing like because Roger. I'm, I'm the rocker singer, and I, I know so what you know. Like, when I go you on know. stage, it just, I go up there with, with the plan is like, I'm going to be, I'm done when this is mm-hmm. over. Right. I could not do right. five shows a day. I couldn't even imagine. Exactly. So, and this was, this was holiday time in New York City, man. You, wow. you, I mean, this is, everybody came, you do these gigs because you make a lot of money. Yeah. So, Roger just, he was like in the third show and he's like, ah, no voice left. And I said, you've got to pull back. You've got to only give about 80, 70, 80% each show. And you've got to just figure out a place where you, in your performance, how you can do that. You have to do this or you'll never make it. He goes, I don't know how to do that. I only know how to give my all 180% at that moment. And I said, you'll never make it. And we've got a month and a half of this. I've always wondered about that because, I mean, when I, when I think of the stage, it's like I'm thinking I'm going to, that, that's where I have a catharsis. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. best word I can think of where it's mm-hmm. like, that's just where I let it go. It feels good. Yeah. Like, I need to. I need yeah. to. But I couldn't imagine, like, it's it's that kind of, almost like having a governor on it. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, 
to be able to set your that that takes a lot of control. It it does, and that's the discipline of of being in the uh, performing. Now the opera singers have a different sort of life, but musical theater people are the hardcore performers, and those those are the people who will work, do their shows, and then stay up to five in the morning partying, and then you know go back to work. But uh, but you have to be disciplined at some point, and you you have to say okay. I, I have to figure out a way to sing through this. You have to sing through colds. You know, they, if if your name is above the title and you're not on, they can they have to get you can get your money back. And the producers don't like doing that. Yeah. So you have to make sure you are at, always in the best health, and or that you sing over a cold. You have to learn how to do that. And there's, wow. I mean, there's ways to do it, and there's oh, tricks yeah, that I've, you have I've to done do stuff like that. But you have but. to know, you have to learn, and you have to know how to do that. Plus, you have to be in shape. You know, I have friends who can sing. Hours and hours and hours and hours, and then just turn around and sing hours and hours and hours again. There are some people who have that kind of stamina, and I'm sort of in the middle of that. I mean, I have to be careful. But once you're in shape and you're and you're working, it's there. It's there. You know, you only get better and better. But, yeah. But Roger didn't. He didn't understand that. I did forum with Whoopi. She came in and replaced Nathan Lane, a black woman playing a man playing a slave, which I just thought was brilliant. She was brilliant, but. Midway through, she crashed, and she said, I, I don't think I can do this. Wow. This is eight shows. And now, the, now there, we were just doing eight shows a week. But that role, she's on the entire show. Eight shows time. a week, though, is it's still hard. a lot. I mean, because it's a whole different kind of performance. Yeah, yeah. It is. I mean, it's it's really, that's, I mean, uh-huh. you know. It's, and you have, to, you have to come up with a way to make it fresh every single time. When you're on your thousandth performance of Cats, and you're riding on the tire, and, and you're thinking, okay, when we close here, I'm going to pack my bag, I'm going to go, we go here next, okay? And that's why you're singing, and your your conversation in your head is, or, you know, did I pack this? Oh, do I want to take that on the, <laughs> uh, we're going, oh, we're going to ride the bus, oh, I put that on the bus, and say, you know, so that's, and you're singing your song, and that's what's going through your head, so you have to make sure, you have to remember that uh, there may be one person, because this happened to me when I was a kid, so this could be your one moment to let somebody out of the closet, to let bring somebody to life by this performance. So you have to think that this is the first show they've ever, ever seen. And that's how you have to go into it every night. So that it's like, this is the first time you've done it. This is the first time they've seen it. And you have to perform for that one person. Even though there's 1,500 people there, you have to think that there's one person who's never, ever done this before and needs to have that theatrical experience. No, it's funny because I, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, and when we'd play, we'd play. I mean, like my band would literally play garages, mm-hmm. basements, attics. I mean, and we'd play yeah. until the police showed up, and yeah, <laughs> and then everybody would disperse. But I, I would always like my when my band I would talk about it would be like, okay, let's just play every show like it's our last because mm-hmm. right, it, it very well could be because. It could be. Our venues were pop-up venues. I mean, it was literally mm-hmm. like there'd be some phone calls happening an hour before, like, "Hey, somebody's parents are out of time. We're going to do this. Mm-hmm. It's going to." And it, but it was, yeah, it's 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 exciting to you know, but yeah. it's it's I can't imagine creating that level of internal excitement every time. I mean, it's mm-hmm. that's hard. It is hard. There is a. It's funny you said that. You know, that's like your ever your your last. Like this could be your last gig. Uh, and in theater, it sometimes it is if you don't realize it till you get off stage and they go, "Thank you, this is we're closing." They have a an opera company that's uh, from Berkeley that has just I don't know how long they've been going, but uh, it's 
relatively young called uh, Opera Edge, uh, Edge West. Uh, uh, I just saw them the other day, and they were at Nick's studio at the American Steel studio. Uh-huh. You know that that performance or that where they show their do their art stuff, and all sorts of stuff goes on in that big space in the in the front part of it. And Nick called me and said, "Oh my God, you've got to come over here." You're not going to believe what's going on here. And, and I was hoping it was naked men being, you know, but no. <laughs> Next best thing was opera. And they, they set up their operas in these weird places and do it. Oh, so they're nice. doing a, a Baroque opera in this, in this American steel building. And then next week they're doing Lulu in the train station, in wow. the abandoned train station. And I went, see, that's why I love that edgy, edgy yeah. kind of thought. And they're using original instruments and and it was cool. I thought, you know, what, what was it? Circuit parties where they find these old abandoned places and they go in and the bands play in there. I don't think it's circuit. It's um, what's it called? There's a term for that because I have friends who do this in D.C. and they find these old deserted places and they set up their band and they mm-hmm. all come there. And you have to be on the in the no right, you know, right. on the test list. And I guess that's what everybody texts now. But now they're doing this also with. Uh, uh, classical music, and it's called um, Group Muse. Oh, interesting. And you go online, and you become part of the Group Muse, and what they do is they somebody says, okay, we use my house, and this violinist and this piano, because we have a piano, we'll do pianist here, and we can hold 40 people. So you sign up to go, you pay online, and you bring your own stuff, and you have a concert in your house. That's super cool. That's just started. It's it's big here. It's not even on the West Coast and, and definitely not in Vegas at this point. Um, and I hope it does because that's brilliant. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do all this time. That's kind of what my cabaret life was and is about being that intimate performance. And I love that. But I think it's also, I mean, when you're talking about art forms like opera and symphony is for those to remain vital I think it's important that they 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 find these alternative spaces mm-hmm. too because they're going to reach an audience other than the audience they would normally reach. I'm touching my nose. Bingo. Yes. And that's Absolutely. important. I mean it's necessary. Mm-hmm. It's because yeah. You know, it's it's otherwise you're it's you know, it's Well, we have we have taken things like opera now. You know, they do opera at the movie theater. They'll do Saturday matinee from the Met. And then they rebroadcast it on Wednesday evenings at the at the movie house, one of the big theaters. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's twenty five dollars, so it's it's still a little it's still cheaper pricey, than opera. But it's still cheaper than you know, ticket there is ninety bucks minimum, and you could be up in the fourth balcony standing. So it may, and it's an amazing sound system, and of course HD cameras, so you can see the nose hairs in them when they're singing. So it's unbelievable how they are really reaching out. To a whole different audience, because like you said, these art forms will disappear. I yeah. really believe that if we don't no, do this. I've got a good friend who is an opera singer, and it's, it's he's, he, you know, I mean, we talk about this all the time, and, and opera companies are closing, yeah. and and also Struggling. just as the tech mm-hmm. company jo- people is, they're not, they're not philanthropists in the way that wealthy people were philanthropists in the past, where right. they don't give to the arts. Yeah, they don't even no. understand the arts. No, I mean, it's they just don't. not even... They don't, because why? Because it's taken out of school. There's nothing to educate people or to, to encourage kids to play or to sing. Yeah. You know, what kind, of, what kind of guitar stuff? It's all about getting on American Idol and making a lot of money. Yeah. It's not about being an artist. It's about how can your parents make you a star so they can have a bigger house. 
And if you watched Jax's parents, and that's I know that to be kind of what they were doing yeah. on American Idol, because my friend was Joey Cook, and she she'd call and go, oh "My God, these people are crazy." Because she Joey was like me in that sense. I just wanted to work. Well, yeah, you know, I wanted to make music. I didn't care where it was. You know, whether I was in in a club or here or there, I knew where I wouldn't be best at. But I had the whole political issue and the greed. The money and all that, that's what, that's what really, you know, of course I want to make a living and of course I want to be paid to, to do what I do, but uh, does, does it have to be, you know, I only come out for, you know, I have friends who say I don't go out unless it's 10,000 bucks. That's my, that's my minimum for an hour. Oh, really? Really? Wow. I think I'm doing good when I get 500 bucks. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, just to circle <laughs> back to this. I'm so glad you said what you said about Pete Townsend because, I mean, <laughs> I really, I mean, he's been, yeah. I mean, such, I mean, The Who has been one of my favorite bands since I was a kid. Such oh, a, cool. Such a huge influence. I mean, and, he's a, and uh, it's, it's oh, yeah. you know, in my lifetime, there's so many times where I've met people who were those influences mm-hmm. and there's times where I meet them and they're the most amazing and wonderful mm-hmm. and kind people. And there's times where I meet them, and they are the most frightening train wrecks. That exactly, I can't it, it, get away from fast enough. Yeah, and it's such it's so disappointing. And, you just go, God, why did I? What was it about you that I like? Well, and it's it's sad because there's mm-hmm. there's this there's this disinvestment process from yeah. their art sometimes because it's yeah. it can be really traumatic. Yeah, yeah, and but so it's just nice to hear that and just yeah, throwing out there if he ever wants. To come on our show, we'd love to have I'll, him because I'll pass it on. I that'd will. be great because I, I really I, I'll do that. I I think he is just I, and i can't say enough is he is so he's done so much for music yeah, yeah he yeah. has he has and he he also brought classical music into his his work he listened to classical music and he listened to baroque and and they had uh he was exposed to all of that at an early age and and how he was influenced by that in his music and if you really take it apart and look at it you see it you see the influence of of what he was doing and how it, how it Oh, I mean, he him. wrote the first rock opera, for yeah. God's sakes. And Hello. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the Who songs, I mean, there's there's a complexity to his songwriting that you don't see in a lot of amazing. pop music. Yeah. I mean, it's... No, no, it's very I mean, true. You, you can tell he's somebody who really, really has a deep understanding mm-hmm. of music. Yeah, absolutely. So. Absolutely. And, and, and he loves to share that. That's the thing. It's not, you know, you can't have this. He, he just gives it away. He just, like, here, have this, have this. The lark is singing on high, the sun's a-shining blue, the winter is driven away, and spring is returning anew. Who cares what sorrow may bring, what storms may tear us apart? No sadness can kill the wonder and thrill of that waltz in my heart. Waltz of my heart, hunting and gay, calling and thrallingly waltzing away. Ring out your bells for me, ivory keys. Weave out your spells for me Oh 
strawberries Chorus of wings Thrilling the sky While you're inspiring me Time hurries by Joy fans are firing me Soon as you start Sweeping your strings Waltz of my heart The winter is driven away And spring is returning anew Who cares what sorrow may bring What storms may tear us apart No sadness can kill The wonder and thrill Of that waltzing And that was Stephen Carter Hicks performing Waltz of My Heart from his album Step Into My Parlor. All the music is from that album that you've heard today, except the uh, intro and outro music that is courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, royalty-free music. And that song's called Midday Dance. Stay tuned for... Part two of the interview coming up next time on Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>